0: I am fairly certain that none of you have ever heard a sermon on this passage before. If you have, you need to tell me. I, God, that'd be surprised. surprise. But I think the Lord will have something to say to us nonetheless, Joshua chapter 13. I'm going to try to make my way through all those names in the first seven verses so you can follow along. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, you are very old and there are still very large areas of the land to be taken over. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and the Geshurites from the Shihor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north. All of it counted as Canaanite, the territory of the five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashgon, Gath, and Ekron, that of the Avites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites, from Era of the Sidonians as far as Aphek, the region of the Amorites the areas of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon to the east, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. As for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions, from Lebanon to Misrafath Maim, that is, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance, as I've instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. <clears throat> The rest of Joshua, until you get to the very last couple chapters, deals with the division then of the land to the 12 tribes, particularly to the nine and a half tribes who crossed the Jordan. Look at verse 1 again. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. Now, here we see the heritage of Achan. His sin led to Israel's first defeat, which was bad enough, people were killed, but even worse was the determination that it aroused in Israel's enemies to stay in their strongholds and fight. What might have been accomplished within a couple of years would not now be accomplished in decades or even centuries And what was worse, by the end of Joshua's life, some of the Israelites had turned against each other. Instead of fighting their enemies, they were fighting themselves. Sin really messes things up. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is the land that remains, all the region of the Philistines and Gesherites, from the Shehor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north. All of it counted as Canaanite. And then there's the territory of the five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, that is the Avites. Now fast forward in time to Samuel. There were still five Philistine kingdoms in the promised land. God intended Israel to engage them and defeat them and drive them out of their borders. But 300 years later, they're still there, still causing grief. They raided Israel's villages, carried off their daughters, stole their food, destroyed their homes. Now consider the parallel to our lives. When we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ, when Jesus, who is Lord of heaven and earth, becomes Lord of our lives, there are still all kinds of things in us that don't belong there. Some of them have been there forever. Some we've invited in of our own volition. Some are hidden and quiet. Nobody knows about them. Others cause all kinds of grief and pain. Attitudes damage relationships. False beliefs prevent us from investing our lives where they could make a difference. Habits take away money that we could use for good. Addictions leave us depressed and cause friction with the people we love most. Crossing into the Christian life does not mean that all your battles are over. Any more than crossing the Jordan River into the promised land meant Israel's battles were over. In our hymnals, a lot of the old hymn writers used the crossing of the Jordan as a metaphor for getting into heaven. But Israel crossed the Jordan to get into a fight. The promised land is a picture of the promised life, not the final destiny. When you became a Christian, God did not automatically remove from you all of the ingrained beliefs and behaviors that are contrary to the life of Christ. Perhaps he removed some, just as he himself drove out some of the enemies, like the Sidonians, from the promised land. And you, perhaps, when you became a Christian, he removed laziness and gluttony from your soul. But why not remove all of the adversaries of the promised life? Pride and envy and anger and lust and greed. Why doesn't the new nature just replace the old nature? Like a new operating system replaces the old operating system in your computer. Why does it have to drive it out? Frankly, we don't know. But it seems that God intends for us to have a role in our own development. Our own eternal development. Indeed, that seems to be a high priority for him. Of course, our role depends entirely on his and is derived from his. But he has nevertheless given us the privilege and the glory of having a role in our own making. It's one of the clearest evidences of God's grace, and if I can put it this way, of his humility. It's like letting a child in his mother's womb have a role in deciding who he's going to become. When Joshua entered the promised land, he had God's assurance that every place he set his foot would be given him. It was theirs for the taking, but Israel had to take it. Achan certainly complicated matters, but the promise still stood. And by the time we come to Joshua 13, our leader is well advanced in years. And there are still many places in the land his foot has never touched. If it hadn't been for Achan, who knows? Israel might have taken all of those places during Joshua's lifetime. But death was now around the corner for Joshua. And he knew his foot would never touch those places. Joshua had been a great leader. One of the greatest. A wise man, a faithful servant of God. He had lived a successful, wonderful life. But he died with things unfulfilled, undone. God's enemies were still entrenched in the land. Now, I think there's a counterpart in our experience. Because we're bigger on the inside than on the outside. That's something we must always remember. Because we're bigger on the inside than on the outside. Because our soul is the biggest thing about us. A vast territory stretching out into the dim unknown. No matter how faithfully we've served God, there will always be more to do. More territory to claim for the Lord. The man or woman who's faithfully served the Lord for 60 years will, like the man or woman who's only lately submitted to God, still have battles to wage and territory to win. We have an inheritance to claim, and it takes an entire lifetime to do so. You are not done. To claim that inheritance, we have to obey God and move forward. Wherever we are right now, Had Israel crossed the river into the promised land and then stopped there? They never would have known what enemies were present in their land. In the promised life, it's much the same. We won't encounter much resistance if we trust in Jesus, cross into the promised life, and then abruptly stop. I'm a believer now. Going to go to heaven someday. I'm just going to stay here. Then we won't experience much excitement either. We'll get bored and we'll start looking outside of the will of God for things that will satisfy us. You don't have to go looking for battles in the Christian life. All you have to do is obey God. That will bring you into plenty of battles. You'll discover things about yourself you never knew. Three months of committed obedience to God will reveal more about the real you than Sigmund Freud could in a lifetime. You'll find out all kinds of things about yourself. Some of them you never wanted to know. Set out to obey God and you'll find out how big a role fear plays in your life. And you'll hate it. You'll be shamed by it. Set out to obey God, you'll find out how sinful your heart really is. Take seriously, for example, men, what God says to husbands about loving their wives. Commit yourself to obedience in that area and you'll soon find out how self-centered you really are. Women, take seriously what God says about submitting to your husband and you'll discover how deeply ingrained is the need to justify yourself and blame others. The way to move forward and claim our souls and lives for the Lord is to obey God. Paul illustrates how people discover the strongholds of resistance that exist in their very own souls when they set out to obey God. He writes in Romans 7 that he was just going along, happy in his own piety, when the command, do not covet, was impressed on his heart. As soon as he became serious about obeying God, That word from the Lord, he found covetousness everywhere in him. He says, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. When he tried to obey God's word, he found himself overrun by covetousness. Sin, he says, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Covetousness had been there all along, lurking in Paul's soul. But he hadn't known it. But as soon as he listened to God's word and tried to obey it, the enemy appeared and the battle was engaged. It's obedience to God's word that brings the resistance, what Paul called sin in my members, out into the open. You obey God and you'll find things inside of yourself and battles to be waged and won. We tend to think that winning the battle is all that matters. That's all that God cares about. If alcohol has a hold on me, if it's messing up my life and damaging my relationships, I think everyone, everything will be fine if I can only stop drinking. God will be happy. If I have a porn addiction, I think that God's only concern is overcoming that addiction. And you know what? The truth is God will be happy if I stop drinking, overcome a porn addiction or any other sin. He'll be happy, but he won't be satisfied. That's because God is more concerned about the kind of person I become than he is about the kinds of things I do. The kinds of things I do are important, but chiefly because they affect the kind of person I will eternally be. If my behaviors were all that God was interested in, he could change them by divine fiat but he has something much bigger in mind. You see, God's developing you on the inside. He's making a fighter of you, a divine fighter, a lover of you, a divine lover. He wants to transform you from the inside, and the battles that you face, even that you sometimes lose, are an essential part of that process. God uses them to shape you into the glorious, joyous, Powerful, beautiful person he had in mind when he made you. You need the battle. If you didn't, things that some of the apostles say, James, Paul, would make absolutely no sense. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God's concern is that you become mature and complete. That is, that you be finished and whole. God wants to bring out all that he put in to you. All the courage and joy and power and love. And that can only happen as you trust him and obey him. Conflict provides optimal circumstances for you to trust him and obey him. Listen to what Paul said. We rejoice in our sufferings. Isn't that the craziest thing you ever heard? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, That is, it shapes who we are and character hope. God is shaping us into the people he longs for us to be. And trials and suffering are a part of the development process. You see what this means? You're not going to like this. It means that you need the trial you're going through right now. The misunderstanding with your spouse. The battle with your teen. The conflict with your parents, the health issue, the job trouble, and on and on. Now, I'm not saying that they're pleasant. I'm not saying that God ordained the trouble you're in or anything like that. What I am saying is this. You can use the trial you are in right now to take some region of your vast soul and claim it for Christ. You say, but this trial isn't my fault. Who said it was? You say, but this trial is so-and-so's fault. Who said it wasn't? But tell me what difference that makes. What are you going to do about it? That's the question. Are you going to trust God in your trial right now and obey what he tells you to do? That's the question. You say, but I don't like it. I'm sorry, but this isn't heaven. Not yet, anyway. You were born into battle. The question is not whether you like it, but what you're going to do about it. Ever and everywhere, Frederick Fraber wrote, a mighty battle is raging around us, a battle in which we are all volunteers. A. And enrolled soldiers on either side of the great silent internal battle of lust against purity, of truth against falsehood, of right against wrong. It needs no splendid occasion, no stately amphitheater, no pomp and prodigality of outward circumstances, for the seat of this battle is in the human heart. But its effects and issues are in the world. You are in a battle. You can look to see who's to blame, you can justify yourself, you can run away and hide. I've done all of those things more times than I care to admit. Or you can obey God and move forward. It's your own soul that hangs in the balance. Now, I'm not talking about whether or not you get into heaven, get that idea out of your head. I'm talking about who you will be when you get there. Will you be all you can be? Will you be great in the kingdom of heaven because you obeyed God during your life on earth? No one in heaven, this will be such a disappointment to some of us. No one in heaven will care about your self-justifications, your excuses, or who was to blame for your failures. And you know what? You won't even care. It'll mean nothing. So if you're investing your life in that, you're investing your life in a loss. What will mean something is how much of your potential life was claimed for Christ. The danger is that we'll get used to the adversaries of God that build strongholds in our souls. We'll get used to them. We'll try to ignore them, pretend they're not there. We'll allow them to coexist with us. We will, in some cases, even surrender control to them. It happened to Israel when they tried to take possession of the promised land. And it can happen to us as we try to take possession of the promised life. Consider Judges chapter 3, which chronicles the time after Joshua has died. Israel's been in the land, the promised land. They crossed Jericho, the Jordan, decades earlier. But there were still pockets of resistance everywhere. This is verse 1, Judges 3. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. Notice the five rulers of the Philistines. Now in another generation, still there, still causing trouble. Israel not only let their adversaries continue living in the promised land, they even harbored them and took them in. Verse 5 of Judges 3. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. What happened in the promised land can and does happen in the promised life. We accept things that God is rejected. We ignore things that get in the way and keep us from the life God intends us to have. We even give ourselves to these things, unite ourselves to them, and trouble always follows. It did for Israel. In Judges 2, we read that Israel spent years vacillating between serving the Lord and serving other gods. When things were good, they would drift away from God. When things were bad, They would come back to him. And that went on for a long, long time. When they called out to God, he intervened and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. For the Lord had compassion on them. But it wasn't long, the text says, before the people returned to even more corrupt ways than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. They were living this seesaw life. They would come to God when things got really bad. Then when things eased up, they'd leave him. And then when things got bad, they'd come back again. Many Christians I've known live the same way. Year in and year out. Back and forth, up and down. Now, God still loves them. But they're wasting valuable time. Letting years and decades go by when they could be claiming for Christ a life that could be beautiful and powerful. They have a vast and glorious soul to claim. And instead, they're making peace treaties with their sins and marrying their bad habits and ignoring God's commands. There's a life to be taken, a purpose to be followed, a leader to be submitted to. There's much to be done. Look back at Joshua 13. Verse 2, this is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and Geshurites from the Shehor on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north from the south, all the land of the Canaanites from the era of the Sidonians as far as Aphek, the region of the Amorites, the area of the Gebelites, all the Lebanon to the east, Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. That land remained unclaimed, even after a long life of Joshua's obedience. Let me ask you this question. What regions remain unclaimed? unclaimed in your life. Regions of ministry that you've been afraid to tackle, mountainous strongholds of addiction and habit, relationships that have never been claimed for God. The way to proceed is not to go attack everything and anything that's out of place in your life. That's not the right way to go about it. Instead, go to God for orders. Ask him what he wants for you. He'll tell you. Read the Bible and let him speak to you. His spirit will tell you what he has in mind. He may say the next battle is here. It may be with laziness or with a false belief Perhaps you've made an idol of money, which needs to be torn down. Perhaps you've let pride control you or some habit invade your life and throw everything into confusion. Let God direct you. Submit to Him. Offer Him your energy and your perseverance and go take that part of your life for Christ. Don't back down. Don't give up. Don't grow weary and don't go it alone. We need each other even in these soul battles. We need each other's prayers, counsel, encouragement, and love. We even need each other's admonition and rebuke. We need each other. Look around you. Everyone you see is in a battle just like you. A critical battle to take all of their lives, all of their souls, and make them entirely God's. There's not a person here who has done all that can be done or a person here who's been released from active service. We're all in the same boat, and it's a battleship. We're in it together. Now let me say one last thing. This text emphasizes something that we see again and again and again in Scripture and in our own lives. The battle isn't won. Spiritual maturity isn't accomplished, and our task isn't completed in a day. Whether you've been a Christian for a month or a half a century, there is still obedience to be given and territory to be acquired. Our commitment to Christ, as Louis Cassells put it, however genuine and wholehearted it may be today, must be renewed tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, until the path comes at last to the river. In other words, don't give up. You will not lose this battle because you fail, even if you fail over and over again. If you lose this battle, it will be because you quit. I read something interesting along that line this week which had to do with why American students have fallen behind students from other parts of the world in math and reading scores. Data suggest it has nothing to do with intellect or innate ability. In a study that involved Japanese and American first graders, students were given a difficult puzzle to solve, a puzzle far beyond a first grader's ability. Researchers weren't interested in whether the children could solve the puzzle or not. That didn't matter. They simply wanted to see how long they would try before they gave up. The American children gave up on average after a little over nine and a half minutes. The Japanese children held out for 14 minutes. In other words, the Japanese children tried 47% longer. And the researchers concluded that the difference in test scores may have more to do with persistence than it does with intelligence. The nations who do better than us simply keep trying longer than us. Now here's the thing, the people who do better in the Christian life are those who try longer. Or should I say, trust longer. Keep trying and trusting. Today is not the day to give up. You won't be done until you're home. Let's pray. God, I don't ask you to spare us from battles, but to rest us when we're weary, and then to speak your word to us and bring us back into the fight. God, by your grace, may we leave nothing behind when we come to you. By the miracle of your grace and the power of your spirit, and all because of the cross of our Savior, may we bring everything you've put into us out and to you as an offering for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.